Thanks for tuning in to Parkview On The Go. I'm Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors at Parkview. And wherever you might be when it comes to your faith, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're just checking out faith for the first time, I hope you find a home here with us. And not only that, we want to help you take steps toward God and toward becoming the person He wants you to be. But listen, if you're anything like me, the one component of spiritual growth that is the easiest to ignore is the importance of doing it with other people. Praying with, learning from, and serving with other people who have their eyes on Jesus. And I think now more than ever, we need each other. And there's an amazing opportunity coming up in just a few weeks for you to find those kinds of relationships for your own life. And it's called Rooted, R-O-O-T-E-D. Rooted is a 10-week deal happening online or in homes all around Chicagoland that will help you discover your purpose, learn more about God, and take some big steps in your faith journey. It's it's one of the best things my wife and I have done, honestly, and I pray that you at least go over to parkviewchurch.com slash rooted when you have the time to see what the hype is all about. Again, that's parkviewchurch.com slash rooted. On this episode of Parkview On The Go, Pastor Tim will continue our teaching series called Rebuild that's all about an amazing man named Nehemiah. I pray that today's message challenges and inspires you in the same way that the others in this teaching series have. Thanks again for tuning in to Parkview On The Go. Love you. Welcome to Parkview. Glad you're here. If you've been with us, we were talking about this uh, crazy heart that Nehemiah has for a ministry project that God put into his heart. And he prayed and he planned and he took a step of faith and he asked a pagan king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall uh, so that the kingdom could be built. And because the gracious hand of God, that's the phrase, was upon him, the king said yes and actually said he would pay for it. Here's the, here's the scripture. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Gracious hand of God, okay? It's always that way. So he goes to Jerusalem. He makes his plans. He organizes the people. He gives a great speech and rouses everybody together and they build the wall. So by this time, you're thinking, okay, great story. The Old Testament equivalent of the Dos Equis man. I mean, you know, Nehemiah is so cool. He's the most interesting man in the world. It, you know, if he were to punch you in the face, you would have to fight off the urge to thank him. That guy, that guy, you know what I'm saying? But the shocking part is we get to chapter four and really the rest of the story and even though the gracious hand of God is upon him, and even though the pagan king is behind him, and even though he's the most interesting man in the world, there is still opposition, okay? As I've said, the story is really about rebuilding the city and the church, which is within the bigger city. It's the city of God, which makes the bigger mission field of the world uh, light up, right? It's the city or the church through whom the salvation of the world comes from. And just like we're doing here at Parkview and wherever you're at at Parkview right now, we're not just trying to build a church, we're trying to build the kingdom of God a vessel through which God can save the world. Because Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's great. Jesus said there should be a city full of people within the bigger city, a church that brings light to the world, okay? And, and that's what Nehemiah is trying to build. And the problem is that Nehemiah's city has no light. 
It's broken down and it has been for 141 years. And this city of Jerusalem is in shambles. And as I mentioned in the very first sermon, the people that are left in the city, and this is what takes us to our present day time, are the widows and the orphans. Everybody else has been taken captive. Everybody else has been removed and the city is in shambles and they've taken everybody but the widows and orphans and God gives Nehemiah a heart for a broken city and the broken church that should have been there. And God gives him the resources and the people to start to build. But let me say it again, okay? I am an expert in this field. I can assure you 100% that when you try to build the kingdom of God, there will be people who don't like it. I do believe there is a power of good and a power of evil. And the more that you work for the good, the more Satan is going to try to stop you. I know these things. It all started in the beginning with the devil who was a snake. So let me just read you one of my favorite illustrations about, you know, being ready for the enemy. It's from the Peace Corps and has to do with snakes. Peace Corps manual for workers who live in the jungle. What to do if attacked by an anaconda. Grows to be 35 feet in length and weighs between three or 400 pounds at the max. And here's what the manual said. If you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run. Number one, the snake is faster than you are. Two, lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your sides, your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck your chin in. The snake will come and begin to nudge and climb all over your body. Number five, do not panic. Think about that one. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you. From the feet end, it always does it from the feet end. Uh, okay, I, I, I'll believe you. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and your ankles and hope you're wearing shoes. Again, it says, do not panic. Number six, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Eight, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg, and then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. But we're not done. The last two are the best. Number nine, be sure you have your knife. And number 10, be sure your knife is sharp. There you have it. If I could give you advice today, it would be make sure you have your knife and make sure your knife is sharp because boys and girls, it's a jungle out there. Such great messages the last two weeks from Nehemiah about the hand of God and trusting God and about teamwork. And this week, you know, you would think you'd get to the end. You know, this should be the concluding chapter of Nehemiah and, and everything's happening great and the wall gets built and the planets are all lined up and, and dogs and cats living together. And it just doesn't happen. This is reality. This isn't life just doesn't get better than this. This is reality. Even though this is God's plan, there is opposition to it. And not just criticism now, it's opposition. How could this be? I mean, if God is doing it, it should go smooth, right? I mean, it must be a lack of faith on Nehemiah's part because God just wants to bless you real good. 
No, this is reality. God does want to bless you real good, but that doesn't mean he's going to make your life a piece of cake. Have you read about his son, Jesus? Did you maybe see the movie? Wasn't an easy life for his son, probably isn't gonna be for us because the snake doesn't want you to see your vision through either. Doesn't want Nehemiah to build the kingdom, doesn't want us to help and protect the widows and the orphans in the city, and doesn't want you to either. Whatever it is that God has laid on your heart, he doesn't, the snake doesn't want that to happen. And you may be in the process right now where he's kind of slowly swallowing you and you haven't got to the part where you get to pull your knife yet. I understand that. Maybe that's what we all feel like during this coronavirus. But here's the deal. Not everybody was excited about the prospect of Israel getting back on its feet economically and politically. We have Sanballat, the Horonite, uh, governor of neighboring Samaria, who was particularly disturbed that someone had come along to promote the city of light. He's a pretty powerful guy. He's got a staff. He's got, you know, a blog. He's got a bunch of Instagram followers. Pretty big dude. And he's got a little army behind him. And he could be a problem. And he's not a believer. He doesn't worship the God of the Bible. He doesn't even pretend to. He likes the fact that the city is destroyed. Here we go. When Sanballat, the Horonite, heard that we were great, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? I was going to do an accent, but then whoever uses that accent is going to be mad because it's the Horonite. So I'll just back to professor voice. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Good one, Sam Ballot. I mean, it sounds like a fourth grader, right? Making fun of the other kids, right? But, but Toby is better. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. <laughs> Can you just picture these guys, you know? Like, like the two guys on you know, Christmas Story, you know, the two bullies, and they're slapping each other on the back. A fox, that's a good one. No, a squirrel, not even a mouse. <laughs> that's very funny. You can just see them high-fiving each other, just dancing around, thinking they're so funny. But you see this around you, right? I mean, you, you, you've had it happen to you. You get a promotion, and all of a sudden, everybody in the office is trash-talking you, right? Pretty girl walks into the room, and the other ladies are like, I bet she can't read. Well, you know, or how about, how about this one? Well, if that church is that big, they must be watering down the gospel, right? I mean, why would they say that? Well, because obviously the gospel is bad news and no one would want to hear it. I mean, how could they be growing? How could that many people want to know that they could be forgiven and could live a life with their father who loves them forever? It just doesn't make any sense. Sorry, I'm venting. But remember, Whenever you try to do something, build something, be something for God, there will be opposition and criticism. And the more that God works, the more opposition that you're going to find. Nehemiah. So we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half its height, making good progress. So the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, he's at the north, Tobiah, who's at the east, the Arabs at the south, the Ammonites, who are at the east with Toby, and the men of Ashdod in the west, 
heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They were very angry, okay? In chapter two, they are disturbed. This is interesting. Chapter four, verse one, they're angry, and now they're very angry. And again, they're surrounding the city. Why? Because the more of the gracious hand of God works in your life, the more people who don't like the gracious hand of God are going to hate it. So they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So now it's gone from, uh, you know, two guys to Larry, Curly, and Mo, and then they, and they start with the threats, but then it starts to get a little bit deeper. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. So, so, so they're moving up to threats of violence, not just, you know, oh, a fox on your wall. This is getting serious. So what kind of effect does this have on the people? Well, these aren't super Christians, they're just people, and they got discouraged. Uh, just like you do, just like you may be right now. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, these are the good guys, said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Now, the text tells us that they're halfway through, right? That's important because halfway through anything is hard to keep motivated for. That's why Wednesday is hump day, right? Got to get over the hump. So Nehemiah is literally surrounded by enemies. The people are freaking out. They're like, this was cool, you know, we got the t-shirt, we were going to do something big for God, but now they're threatening us. They're talking about hurting us. And uh, I mean, somebody said a mean word to me on Twitter. I, I don't know if I'm up for this. We can't do it. Let's give up. So how do you respond to criticism today? If you don't have any, you're not doing enough. So do something. And here's how we respond to criticism. Number one, you rely on God. First time there was criticism, he relied on God. I, I, I'm not just making this up. It's not a churchy answer. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success, okay? So this time he does the same and he prays again, but his prayer is so stinking awesome. Listen to this. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out before you because they have demoralized the builders. <laughs> Is that what you think Jesus meant by pray for your enemies? <laughs> I, I, I don't think so, okay? So, so if you haven't read on in this yet, Nehemiah is not the most patient man in the universe. This is why I, I love his honesty. My point here is that he didn't openly attack the opposition. The first thing he did was pray. The first thing you should do with opposition is go to God, not back to them. Nehemiah moves from the criticism right into the prayer. And this explains why the prayer is so hostile, right? Some commentators on this passage are like, you know, they're trying to downplay the level of anger and hostility in his voice. No, this was anger and hostility. Nehemiah didn't take any time to cool down. He didn't collect his thoughts. And I think this is what God wants. God wants you to go directly back to him 
and tell him what's going on. If you're hacked off, if you're angry, if, if you're confused, if you're discouraged, go back to him. You can pray for God to send people to hell if you want. It's not gonna matter. He's God, he's gonna do the right thing. What I'm saying here is that he didn't go back to them, okay? He didn't just pick a fight. He just, just didn't send off a response on Facebook. He, 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 he took it to God where it was supposed to be. And check out the verse. I mean, basically what he says is, dear Lord, I hate these people. Please send them to hell. And then he goes back to work. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together at half its height for the people had a mind to work. See that? We waste a lot of time and energy trying to answer questions. And this is a social media lesson for you 101. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to answer questions for people who are not really interested in answers. Without realizing it, we start focusing on the criticism and we become critic-centered instead of vision-centered where we should be. I might be worth the whole thing right there. Proverbs says, do not answer a fool in response to his folly or you will be like him yourself. I know you are, but what am I? Just, I mean, it, it didn't work in second grade. It doesn't work now. So Nehemiah was able to remain vision-centered in spite of the criticism because he took it to God, right? He, he, he continued to channel his thoughts and energy and his character and his direction all in the direction of the vision. That's where he was going, okay? How could he do that? Here's what's really super important. It's because it wasn't his wall. Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah both called it their wall. Like, you know, it's your wall, Nehemiah, their wall, you, you people. But it wasn't Nehemiah's wall, it was God's wall. My friend Gene Apple, my good friend Gene Apple, described pastoring a large church. He was doing it back when I was pastoring a really small church. And and I was asking him about it one time, and he, he, he gave me an illustration that was perfect. He said, pastoring a large church is like driving a race car. I mean, you, you've always been driving a car, and bad things can happen, but now the car is worth a lot more, and you're driving a lot faster. I fully understand that now. But you know what? Not my church. Not my wall. I'm going to work really hard not to mess it up, and I'm going to make sure I do my part as we rebuild it, and as we build it, but it's God's wall. Here's what the Bible says. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious, right? We did this anxious for nothing last year about anything. But in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Even if you're mad and you want to ask God to send somebody to hell, just don't let your family hear you doing it. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And eventually, God will soften your heart towards your enemies and you'll be able to pray for them in the same way that Jesus asked us to in the first place, okay? How about this one? You gotta respect the opposition. Respect the opposition. But we pray to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I love this verse. The first attack was criticism. The second attack was threats. And they responded to the first attack with prayer. And they answered the second attack with security guards. Okay? 
So like if you wanted to talk about whether we should eliminate the police or not, yes, there are problems, but it's fairly obvious that the city needs to be protected and guarded. Posting a guard has never been an unbiblical idea, and it might seem strange in here that Nehemiah is saying we're going to trust in God, but we're also going to post a guard, but it's not. What I'm saying is that Nehemiah does the prayerful thing and then he does the practical thing. He doesn't just leave it up to God, he uses his brain. Holy cow. Posting a guard did not demonstrate a lack of faith, okay? Having a sword while they worked didn't make the people in Jerusalem any less dependent on God. He didn't stop the work, he just told the people to be prepared. He did what he knew, and he trusted God for the rest. Which brings me to the third one. We reinforced the weak areas. It's fascinating. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall. What is he doing? He's using his head. The wall that was at exposed places, and I posted them by families, there we are again, with their swords and their spears and their bows. He gave the troubled spots a lot of extra attention. That's just exactly what you ought to do, right? Again, with the planning, again, we see leadership. And then we hit this key verse here. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Do you know what this is? This is a trowel. Yeah, it's a a trowel, okay? Some of you single guys think, well, that's an egg flipper. No, that's why your pans are all scratched up. This is a a trowel. You use this for laying bricks, okay? If you're a bricklayer, you lay bricks, you build a wall. That's what they were doing. In the days of Nehemiah, they were building the wall. But not only were they to wield the trowel in one hand, they also had a sword. This is the point of Nehemiah chapter 4. You can't just build something, you also need to protect it. Otherwise, everything that you've worked so hard for is going to be destroyed, it's gonna be stolen, it's gonna be taken, and everything you've worked for is just gonna go away. (laughs) That's gonna leave a mark. What has God called you to build? What has God called you to build? Build a relationship with Jesus, Has God called you to build a better marriage, to work towards a marriage someday so that you can build a good marriage if you're single? Has he called you to build a family as a parent and build your children, your family, as a grandparent like me? Has God called you to build a business to help underwrite the other things that he's called you to build? Maybe it's a new business now in the middle of this. Has God called you to build a ministry or an aspect of ministry, children's ministry or a community group or whatever? Has he he asked you to build a, a, a church campus for Parkview in your home during this time? Whatever it is that God has called you to build, you've got to build it, but you've also got to protect it. It's trowel work. Man, I mean, you know, working your job, paying your bills, loving your spouse, you know, taking care of your kids, walking with Jesus, all of that stuff is trial work and it's a lot of work. But the problem is once it's built, once it's being even in the process of being built, there are people who follow Satan and some of them are even claiming to be religious who are gonna work against everything that you've tried to build. And you've gotta work, You've got to work on not just building it, but keeping your head down, building your life, and then occasionally looking up and saying, where are the potential dangers? Where are the weak points? How can I defend it? And my point is, this is intensely practical. 
After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. There have been many phrases throughout history to encourage people to fight on. Remember Pearl Harbor, remember the Alamo, right? But, but this is the thing, when we come back to the last part of this, it's basically the first thing all over again with a little reminder. Remember the Lord and fight for your family. What is it that Satan is trying to get you to give up on? Is it, is it the Bible, reading the Bible? Is it your marriage? Is it your generosity? Is it leading a small group? No, they will not take our freedom. Remember the Lord and fight for your family. When our enemies, listen to this, heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we returned to the wall, each one to his own work. And I'll skip you up. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, month of Elul in 52 days, chapter seven. When all our enemies heard it, all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this is the work that had been accomplished with the help of our God. You gotta love that. Nehemiah's critics lost their confidence. Why? Because they realized God was involved. Because when the gracious hand of God is behind you and it's behind your vision and you partner with him, nothing is gonna stop you. If God is the source of your vision, then the day will come when even your harshest critics will have a difficult time explaining away what he has done through you. So don't allow criticism to distract you. If need be, vent to the Father, you know, it's okay. And then channel your excess energy right back into the thing that he commissioned you to do. You are not accountable to your critics. You are accountable to the one who has invited you to partner with him to create what could be and what should be. Charles Stanley tells one of my favorite stories, a time when he was struggling with a lot of opposition. And in the midst of it all, an elderly member of his church invited him to her apartment for lunch. And, and he, he went over there and he knew that, he didn't know if she was on his side or not, but he, he finally agreed and they had lunch together. And, and she took him to a picture hanging on the living room wall. And it was this picture of Daniel in the lion's den. And she said, son, look at this picture and tell me what you see. Stanley looked at the picture and described everything he could see. The lions had their mouths closed. Some were lying down. Some were standing. Uh, Daniel was standing with his hands behind him. He described everything he could see. And then she said, well, is there anything else? And he said, well, nothing I can really see. She said, son, what I want you to see is that Daniel doesn't have his eyes on the lions, but God. Nehemiah 4.20. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Well, let's pray our benediction. God, these are your servants and your people who you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today by granting us favor. In Jesus' name we pray. What a powerful message. I believe just like Pastor Tim said, when the gracious hand of God is behind you and it's his vision and you partner with him, nothing can stop you. So as you go about your day, I'd love for you to take a little time to think about how God wants to partner with you in this world. And yeah, I know that that's a pretty big idea, but seriously, 
take a second to think about it. I mean, how often do we actually pause and try to listen to God and figure out what he's trying to say to us? So take a second to think about it and start by saying a little prayer like this. God, you know how I'm wired. How do you want to use me in this world? Then pay attention to what comes to mind, and I think you'll be surprised by the ways God wants to speak to you. Thanks again for tuning in to Parkview on the Go. God bless. Thank you.